It's the Villain News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. It's May already, everyone. May. And I rode this morning. I got snowed on. Come on, Colorado. What's going on? Uh, we have a great show for you today. Spencer Paulison is here. Spencer is back from the Epic Rides mountain bike races. Spencer, how are you feeling? I'm slowly recovering. I think it's maybe in a day or so my legs will finally feel somewhat normal. I was, I was, in, I was in a bad state on yeah? Sunday. Yeah? Pancake? Day after my race. Yeah, oh, it was, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, it was, you're, it was good, though. It's snowing out uh, in the mountains, so I think you, you deserve the rest. Also here... Dane Cash. Hello, Dane. Hey, Fred. How you doing? What'd you get up to this weekend? I rode myself, although I don't I don't think I rode as hard as Spencer did. I wasn't in any pain caves uh, on, on Sunday. I was just sitting around doing nothing on Sunday. So, yeah. Well, as we all know, Spencer is a professional e-bike racer. Yeah, that's so, right. I'm just an amateur. You know, yeah. Yeah. I really could have used an e-bike in that 48-mile race Oof. out there in Arizona, the Whiskey 50, the Whiskey w- Off-Road. Would the mountain bikers have stopped you and chided you for using an e-bike? Hmm. Yeah, might have been. Yeah, might have invited some some trouble there. Yeah, we would have gotten some mean tweets over that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, guys, we have a great show to get to today. We will be talking all about a number of different topics from the wide world of bicycle racing. We'll be talking about the Tour of Romandy and some of the news that went on recently. Uh, Spencer will fill us in on the Epic Rides and the Whiskey Off-Road, one of the innovative off-road races shaping the world of American mountain biking. I was at the Red Hook Crit. Guys, the Red Hook Crit, fixed gear racing's Olympics out there in New York City. You've got, was, a, you got a real nice hipster beard that's you're yeah, cultivating. Yeah, it's, in. it's yeah. true. Uh, I, can, I can smell single origin coffee on your breath mm. and... Uh, I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little worried about you driving around that Prius, though. That's kind of. I will say, sea salt continues its takeover of all things. Oh yeah, uh, Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, everything. Every new restaurant there was like salt and whatever, and like sea salt flavored whatever. I, I I'm, am- I'm waiting for like sea salt dentine to come out. Mm. I think that would be like the salty new- gum. Salty gum. Yeah, that'd be nice for a hot bike ride because it would yeah. sort of like replenish your. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you are a Brooklyn hipster. That's a good business idea. Nope. Salt gum. Let's, don't take that idea. That's our idea. That's true. Uh, we, we also, in addition to talking about off-road racing and fixed gear racing, we'll be talking about road bike racing because, guys, the Giro d'Italia starts this week. How did on that Friday. happen? Yeah, yeah, I know. It Whoa. snuck up on me, too. It seems like just the other day we were putting together the print issue, the Giro Guide, and it seemed like this far-off race that was weeks and months away. And the Giro is upon us. And we are going to be leading the listeners through the various storylines, the various battles, maybe give some intel on the stages to watch, the stages to skip, the stages to set your DVR to, so maybe you can watch them again and again. Um, And then, yeah, everything else in between. So let's get to it. Dane... There were there was actually some bike racing this went some world tour level there was bike racing that went on what happened over the weekend give, us, give us the news the news rundown for scenic world tour I, I was just kind of watching the scenery I don't really know what happened in the racing sorry um, <laughs> no uh, it was it was a interesting tour to Ramondi Richie Port was your big your big world tour grand tour type guy that was kind of expected to shine. Uh, he did not shine brightly enough, however. Oh, yeah. shocker. shocker. That's a shocker. Richie well, he, Port shows actually, up and doesn't live up hey to now, expectations. Hey now, this is a one-week race. <laughs> this is a one-week race. Richie Port tends to shine in the one-week races. Real specialist. The three-week races are, I think, his his area. Of was meat. he winning and then got hit by a meteor? Yeah, there was no, there was no Richie Port uh, wild mishap. He just wasn't good enough, I so think. He, yeah. 
Oh, alternate yeah. take though is that this is a good barometer for the tour. If he's really crappy at a, a one week bar- race, yeah, and it's like, yeah. oh, watch out, he might be on for the three weeks. This is true. Uh, he wasn't crappy. He was he was third. He was okay, but yeah. he just wasn't as good as Primoz Roglic, who <laughs> who uh, has been quite impressive this year. Primoz Roglic has now won two of the World Tour stage races so far this year, uh, on the on the back of his strong time trial and his climbing ability. Uh, so. We don't have any. Uh, we don't have any intel on Roglic as a Grand Tour contender just yet. But who knows what's in the cards for him? Dane, were you aware that Primoz Roglic used to be a ski jumper? Oh, really? God. I know. Tell me more about like, that. Like four days after we have our chat, and uh, our our very wonderful uh, coworker Andrew Hood posts the Primoz Roglic former ski jumper story on Velonews.com. <sighs> yeah. Well, I'm let's, sure there's let's still. Put the, well, let's put that one to bed. There's though. people out there, I'm sure, who still don't know. Probably. You know. <laughs> he was a ski jumper. People yeah. tell everyone you know. Yeah. But the, the yeah. reason I scoff at Port um, being third to Roglish in this race is, I mean, come on, Richie Port probably makes at least twice the amount of Roglish mace, and like if you're not yeah. beating him in the Romandy, like come on, it's, it's I, maybe I, I gotta wonder. Needs to get needs to get paid more. Maybe good, that's the moral of the story. Well, yeah. maybe if he get some crossover sponsorship from like Fisher Skis mm, or like mm. Rosignol or something. Yeah, yeah, a little off season. Uh, you know, create some content for the fans, some ski content. Yeah. So Roglic has these two big wins. He is racing the Tour de France this year. Uh, I think his team has put out messaging saying, eh, he's going for stage wins. He's an opportunist. What do we make of that? Do you think that is legit? Or are they trying to smokescreen us from the potential of Primoz Roglic, Tour de France contender? Yeah, maybe a little bit of both. They don't have anything to lose by saying he's just going for stages. And then if he actually goes up in the GC, they could say, oh my, wow. What a great GC ride, Primaj. I think he's going to go for stages when he can, particularly the time trials. He has won time trials and Grand Tours before, so definitely the guy that you're going to be watching for that. But, yeah, I think a top 10 is possible. It, I mean, you got to think Steven Kruiswick is going to be their, their number one guy for the tour. He's not headed to the Giro this year, but... Low expectations are pretty key for a Grand Tour debutante. Yeah, definitely. Well, he's he's been at Grand Tours before. He just hasn't really been, been in the contention mode. Yeah, he's been too busy ski jumping. That's true. Did you know that? Ski no, jumped, really. Ski jumped, oh, that's yeah. fascinating. This Boy. is the most in-depth Primoz Roglic yeah. conversation <laughs> we'll ever have on the Velenius podcast. Uh, Egan Bernal, yeah. also very impressive. That? Yeah, I, Roglic wasn't the only one to impress. Egan Bernal uh, won his first ever World Tour race. We heard a lot about Bernal the last couple of years. People were very excited about him. His numbers were very good. Uh, he was riding with uh, Androni. And then he signed with Sky, and there was very high expectations. And he actually went out and won a World Tour stage. He won the time trial. It was an uphill time trial, so that's why he won it. Yeah, uphill enough that Dan Martin was actually like up in contention. So that's how you know how much of a climb the time trial was. Uh, and yeah, he finished second overall, only like eight seconds behind Roglic. So Sky has to be pretty happy about that. Well, considering he broke his... Was it a collarbone or shoulder in a crash not particularly long ago? I believe it was like six weeks ago he crashed, had a injury, and was off the bike. You know what? I feel like this is one of those instances where perhaps the guy finally gets a little rest. You know, it's like he's had this huge spring racing in Colombia, racing in Europe, doing a ton of training and has a crash and uh, some forced time off the bike and the, the body's able to heal and then boom, afterburner. Yeah, and good news, I think, for a team that uh, maybe needed a little bit of good news this year. Sky, 
hasn't always had the best news surrounding them. I would yeah, say the old year. tour of Romandy time trial woo-hoo! stage win yeah, sure does yeah. uh, get the blood pumping yeah, ooh, for a team ooh, that's won ooh, a million ooh. tours. To, yeah, blood pumping. Problematic. Ooh. Wrong turn of phrase. Yeah, yeah but uh, yeah, time, Team Sky obviously sent out very happy press releases and hugged everyone after that yeah, yeah. stage win at Tour of Romandy. <laughs> uh, guys, when I think of the Tour of Romandy, I think of like rain misery people getting Mm. sick crashing like people's seasons literally getting ruined by this race not so bad this year no no it was nice global warming there you go Mm, it has a bright side yeah turns out yeah well it's funny because romany's really pretty and usually you're right it does rain so this time you just got to watch the scenery with no uh no tj crashing in the rain nothing like that late late april and late april in the mountains is always questionable as as Fred proved to us by his bike ride this morning getting caught in the snow. Uh, Moving on, the other news piece that came out in recent days that we need to talk about is uh, recently retired pro rider Louis Westra, who raced for Vacansole as well as Astana, has apparently written a tell-all. Well, he didn't write it as as normal. Some journalist wrote it. And he has been dribs and drabs – letting out some information about this tell-all that basically says he was widely abusing TUEs for corticosteroids. He was also using tramadol to gain an advantage during races. And he also bought his first win. Wow, Louis. I mean, thanks for coming clean on these ones. You know, whenever a, a rider does one of these things, like there's part of me that is very appreciative of them coming clean. Then there's also part of me that wonders why they're actually doing it, especially so soon after retiring. Louis Wester has not been out of the sport particularly long. I think it's a pretty good reason for it. Uh, he saw what Thomas Decker did when when Thomas Decker's book came out, sort of similar tell-all, talk to the media, get your story out there. And I am sure it sold a lot of books. And I think that is the impetus here for Wester to chat. He's all over the media right now. People are going to buy his book, at least in the Netherlands. I think people are going to buy his book. That's the goal. So this... Louis Westra tell all in these interviews he's been giving is further proof that this era that we are currently in in cycling, um, the era after what we have come to view as the go-go doping era of EPO and bl- uh, blood transfusions, HGH and steroid use widespread across the Peloton, that we are not entirely in a clean era, but in an era where these gray area methods of doping are being used. And that, of course, is abusing TUEs for powerful corticosteroids that help you cut weight and help you recover. Yeah, they give you those little gains, just like the very small gains. Yeah, Marginal, maybe? They're kind of marginal sometimes, those types of gains. Mostly marginal, sometimes marginal. That's what it's all about. Um, Then there's also the stuff about tramadol, which we've written about on the site, a powerful painkiller that can null all your aches and pains. Wester said he used it and chased it with 600 milligrams of caffeine. So you get the downer and the upper yeah. before doing a time trial, like a 14K time trial at three days of Dapana. The whole thing is just so strange to me. It's like, why would you be, you know, doing that for three days of Dapana? Yeah. I mean, that just shows you the kind of pressure these guys put yep. themselves under. And you know, all joking aside, that tramadol is a pretty serious issue. And yeah. it's, it's addictive. It's, um, I believe, a, an a opioid painkiller of some sorts. And there's, uh, yeah, there's concerns related to that that are pretty pretty major. But yes, it is a little strange to 
go all in on trying to win the time trial at three days of Depana. And I guess the overarching story that I'm getting from this Westra tell all is, uh, well, first of all, I appreciate him doing it. I think we can all say we do that more. Yeah. The more openness, the better. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's shedding light on the most recent era of cycling, probably the one that we're still living in, which is that these types of methods are being done and they're being done with a great amount of success. I mean, Westra rode for Astana during three of the seasons when Astana has been its most successful, 2014, 15, and 16. If you look at 2014 Astana, and obviously we shouldn't consider these results necessarily guilty by association, but Westra is saying here he was on Astana um, abusing these techniques to gain an unfair advantage. And uh, 2014 Astana, that's the year when they won the Tour de France. Four stages of the Tour, Vincenzo Nibali, Aru, and uh, Landa winning stages at the Giro. Westra won a stage at Catalunya. Um, 2015, this is the year when Aru wins the Vuelta a España, and Aru and um, Landa again are doing big things at the Giro. Um, th- these are two years in which Astana have tremendous amounts of success. And again, you know, I, we shouldn't automatically consider this a guilty by association type situation, but ah, here's this guy admitting to what he was doing and it corresponds with just a tremendous amount of success by the team he was on. Not exactly a stamp of approval, is it? It's a bad look, I think. Bad look, yeah. bad optics. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's another dark mark against Astana in their long history of it. After Westra gave his interviews, uh, Astana put out a, just a tremendous public uh, a real public pearl clutcher. <laughs> oh my, real great statement. <laughs> Let's see if I can bring it up here. No, I can't. Anyway, they said they were very surprised. <laughs> surprised. Yeah, categorically denying the whole the whole thing. We were shocked about the yeah. news, and we want to make sure make clear that the Astana Pro Team forbidden drugs. We want to make clear that at Astana, why don't you just read it in Forbidden Kazakh? drugs are never and will never be provided to any rider. In case that the use of prohibited drugs really took place, Astana team reserves the right to demand financial compensation from the rider. Ooh, they're threatening Westra. Since the use of doping is strictly prohibited by the internal regulations of the team, which is signed by a rider. Is uh, Alexander Vin- Vinokurov going to put a lien on the sales yeah. of Westra's books? He needs that money to then pay off his own legal costs, yeah, I think. That's so, true. Yeah. Mm. Interesting wrinkle. Mm. I like this. Um, come yeah. on. Come on, Astana. Stay classy. Uh, yep. Spencer, it's the beginning of the season. It's new bike time. We were out at Sea Otter the other week, looking at all of the awesome new bikes on the market. I got to tell you, I got my eyes out for a new bike. Yeah, Fred, it is that time of the year, and there's just so many good options out there. Uh, here's an idea. Fazari Bikes, you can uh, order these bikes online. They've got a great system where they get all your measurements. They custom build the bike. It fits great right out of the box. And, you know, if you don't like it, they've got a 30-day love it or return it guarantee. So that's a pretty sweet way to, to get into a new bike, if you ask me. Yeah, we were uh, checking out the Fazari Bikes at Sea Otter. They had a bunch of the new models at their booth. 
what I liked about some, some what I liked about them some really flashy colors, mm. green, some gold. They were able to do some really good looking bicycles. Totally, and they've been selling direct to riders like you and I for 12 years, and so they've definitely got it figured out. They always do a lifetime warranty for their frames. Uh, it's a pretty sweet setup, and in fact, Fred, I rode one of those flashy bikes myself at the Whiskey Off Road. We're going to talk more about that later on the podcast, but uh, let's get into it. And thanks to Kazari for sponsoring this episode. Well, um, guys, let's get into it. Let's talk about some epic rides. Spencer, you went and participated in the Whiskey Off-Road. It is the first of four races part of the Epic Rides Mountain Bike Series. And these events in recent years have become the premier racing series for both professional mountain bikers, but I think also for age group and participant mountain bikers. And why do you think that is? Why have these races gotten to be so popular? Yeah, exactly, Fred. And, you know, there are, before before we talk specifically about that, it's, you know, you can say that there are a lot of mountain bike races out there that do successfully attract both things. You know, the Wars series in the Midwest is, is a big, still a big thing for cross-country racing, stuff like that. But Epic Rides does have... Uh, there's something special about it in that they really create, uh, you know, a fun festival atmosphere that has live music practically all day on Saturday. Uh, the courses are pretty fun, pretty interesting. They, they're backcountry courses. They're not multiple laps like, you know, the old style cross country Norba style. Uh, they, they have a lot of money on the line, which is what attracts the pros. So it's, it's an interesting blend of that kind of uh, they cater to participants. They make it a fun event. I mean, shoot, they have a, they have a petting zoo for kids at the, at the venue, which is amazing. Like, I mean, what a, what a great idea to have that, to keep the kiddos, you know, happy and entertained while dad or mom is off doing a 48, 50 mile mountain bike race. So it's just a, an overall eye for what makes it fun and what makes people excited to come out and do these and um you know they really put their heart and soul into it the epic rides crew well it sounds like it's not just a bike race but it's a multi-day multi-day festival so there are like yeah fat tire crits around downtown that you get to watch and they're really fun for spectators and you can drink beer then there's your race and afterwards there's a rock concert and there's all these sort of ancillary events that help make the experience not just your typical um, you like office park crit. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, the first thing I think is key to making it so successful is that, uh, whiskey fit the whiskey off-road, at least it, it is sort of right downtown in Prescott, Arizona. So it's easy to walk around and see all these different things to pop into a restaurant. If you're hungry, it's, um, it, it, it really informs the way that the race in the weekend goes because you're just right there in the middle of things. You're not off in the hinterlands. And, um, yeah, like you say, the, the weekend on Friday kicks off with the pro fat tire crits, which is such a throwback if you think back to the days of, you know, Cactus Cup and all those uh, old school mountain bike races in the late 90s. They had these fat tire crits, and it's kind of a wacky idea. You send people around a crit course on mountain bikes, and, <laughs> you know, it's but it, it really works, though, because when you have a mountain bike race that's a 50-miler that puts people way out in the backcountry and isn't really that spectator-friendly, having kind of like an exhibition on Friday is a great way to give people a chance to see the pros racing. They have a little bit of that action. It's, you know, there's there's money on the line for that as well. Hot Sauce Company sponsored mm. it, El mm. Yucateco, by the way. 
I really like El Yucateco hot sauce, and you know, and that's just coming from a purely editorial standpoint. Um, and that's uh, it's cool because it shows that there's there's interest in it. The pros, will, you know, they're they're excited to do it. They're all required to do it, by the way. When that that helps make for a strong field in those Friday night crits, and then and then they carry on, and um, you know, the, the music, the racing. It's it's a great full weekend of activity. So the context, the historical context that I view these whiskey that these epic rides races through is from my own experience. I was the mountain bike editor at Velo News from 2004 until 2009, and you know that was the era in which the Olympic chase was sort of the pinnacle of American mountain biking. Totally. All mountain bikers of the cross-country variety had these Olympic aspirations, which meant you went to the Norbas or the NMBS races and then the World Cup. And these races were multi-lap races. A lot of times it was like one climb, one descent. The laps were short. They weren't particularly spectator-friendly. And they were held in, you know, at ski resorts or places far off the grid. But the professionals had to go there. And the idea was by having the professionals, you get the amateurs to show up as well. And, you know, as 2007 turned into 2008, turned into 2009, sponsorship was going away. Pro riders were retiring. The momentum and the, the juice was really kind of getting sucked out of this scene. And I left in 2009, but I remember thinking, man, what is the future of American mountain bike racing. You know, here it is, the sport that America created, mountain bike racing. And, you know, the Europeans are dominant, and we can't even keep a a series going and real momentum behind it. So to come back to the sport, you know, almost a decade later, and to see this new format thriving and doing really well, I don't know. It makes me really happy to see. Yeah, and the vibe is very positive at Whiskey Off-Road. Everyone's super stoked to be there. And I think all the all the professionals, certainly the ones I talk to, agree that their sponsors are really stoked on these events because they're they're inspiring to people and they get the, the amateurs excited to race and participate because they present – uh, a race experience that is more of a personal challenge than it is, you know, something where you're chasing upgrade points or trying to get on the podium to win a t-shirt or something like that. It's uh, It does kind of take us back to a time when mountain biking was more about that backcountry experience, less about this kind of weird sort of Olympic format that feels a little artificial relative to how most people ride their mountain bikes anymore. Um, so, and, you know, above all, I feel like Epic Rides, and a number of other races that I've been to recently, the ones that are really good for sure. Epic Rides, they, you know, they really know how to treat the participants well and give them the best possible experience and, and know that it's, it's a consumer product and that, and that giving them a, a positive experience is going to keep them coming back for more and keep them excited about it and telling their friends about it. And, um, and it just informs the overall sort of uh, experience. Well, let's hear for some uh, racers. You talked to some racers, right? Yeah, definitely. Let's um, let's throw it to Chloe Woodruff. And I thought this was an interesting one because she actually decided to move to Prescott, Arizona after having done the whiskey a few times and really loving it. Uh, and now she's she's a local. She uh, This is her 
this is her world championships basically because everyone in town you know they know her they know she races uh she's uh she's used a lot of her prize money over the years of whiskey to like build out a nice new kitchen in her place in prescott it's i asked her if she's got like a special trophy case there she says she's still working on it because it seems appropriate right if you're using the prize money for the kitchen but here she is uh she uh she she won the fat tire crit she got second in the cross country and in the, in the in the 50 mile cross country on Sunday behind world champion Annika Longvad. So, uh, Chloe Woodruff. Hi, I'm Chloe Woodruff. I race for the Sands Pivot Pro Team and I live right here in Prescott, Arizona. So, Chloe, talk to me about what whiskey means to the Prescott mountain bike community. Well, the Whiskey Off Road is the kind of the, the biggest weekend. It's probably the biggest weekend of the year in Prescott. Um, you know, it brings a huge amount of attention to the sport of mountain biking. It's helped, you know, revitalize. Well, it's it's helped pump a lot of energy and resources into um, our local trails group, Pimba. Um, and we have an incredible network of trails here. So it's kind of this opportunity for people outside the region to come in and, you know, kind of have their, their minds blown a little bit by the not only the quality of trails we have throughout the Prescott National Forest, but I think just the quality of the, you know, the quality of life here. Um, the, the courthouse square is an amazing place to kind of gather and um, Prescott still feels like a small town. Um, everyone's really friendly. And, you know, I in the weeks leading up to the race every year, I have, as I'm kind of train through town I have random people you know roll down their car windows and ask me are you here for the bike rate you know <laughs> and and so it re reaches this broader audience yeah. and you know I, I I'm always humbled by being the local and you know I get my my I, I get to be in the paper and you know people <laughs> yeah. kind of recognize me and it's, it's humbling and you know I really have a huge appreciation for not only this this event um, but also for kind of the people that bring a lot of energy to it so it's a big deal here nice yeah that's interesting so it's funny i remember when i remember when chloe was a junior i interviewed her one time in her dorm room at the university of arizona and now she's just crushing all these races she's really talented and she's also one of those who is chasing the world cup dream um she's not strictly doing epic rides marathon races and uh yeah, I mean, getting back to what you were talking about before, it is a tension a little bit between uh, riders who want to do the World Cup, who want to try to qualify for the Olympics, and these more kind of popular and perhaps more um, participant-oriented events like the Epic Ride Series. Yeah, because the effort for a World Cup cross-country, that's like an hour and a half. Exactly. And it's it's full on, yeah. like out of the saddle, sprinting up these hills. Yeah. And meanwhile, I can't imagine for a three-and-a-half-hour Epic Rides race you're going to be doing that. The physiology is definitely different. Uh, the riders realize this. They kind of do it strategically. Um, and you can be sure that once the Olympics are getting closer, uh, you know, key Olympic hopefuls like Howard, Howard Gratz or Kate Courtney or, um, you know, for that matter, probably Chloe Woodruff and them, they will be a little more focused on the World Cups and that sort of thing. And furthermore, the other factor is that you don't get any sort of UCI points for, for the, for the whiskey off-road or for any of the Epic Ride series because they simply aren't sanctioned by the UCI or USA Cycling. And, um, as you probably know, for a World Cup cross country race, it's really important to have good positioning in the start grid. And you, you need to collect those UCI points year in and year out to, to be positioned well in the start grid. So that's another tricky thing that they have to navigate as professionals. But there are also pros that, 
they're content to just do the off-road series. And I mean, there's great prize money. There's a lot of fans. It's it's a big deal for them. And there's certainly plenty of riders who are happy to stick to that. Well, if you're a mountain biker in America, put it on your list. Go check out one of these epic rides races. I would totally recommend it. It's um, It's the sort of thing where... I met a number of people over the weekend who told me sort of a similar story where they're like, oh, yeah, I used to race pretty seriously and I didn't as much. And then, you know, now I like to hop into these once in a while. And it's, uh, yeah, it's an experience. It's it's a backcountry day, a long ride. It can be as hard as you want it to be or not. And um, you can get really bad cramps like I did. And that's um, that's also an added bonus where you can experience that pain firsthand. Ye- yeah, check out com to read all about Spencer and his cramps. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, lots of stories about cramps. So Spencer, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you raced on a Fizari mountain bike at the Whiskey Off-Road. So let's get into it. Tell me about this bike. What was it like? Yeah, Fred, I rode the new Signal Peak, which is their cross-country full suspension bike. This thing is like brand new. I mean, it came out like the week before Sea Otter, but no trouble at all. Hopped right on it, the Whiskey Off-Road, and uh, I really liked it, actually. This is, uh, you know, I'm used to kind of the old school XC bikes that are pretty uncomfortable and kind of sketchy and nervous on fast downhills, but this bike's not like that at all. It's 120 mils, full suspension. It got me thinking, I, I think I've come up with a new category of mountain bike. Okay. Are you ready for this? Yes. It's not cross country, it's cross country. Ah. Because it, it's actually fun to ride. I mean, this is like, this is a bike that you could you just go out and have fun riding. It's not a race bike in terms of being, feeling like it's a serious, aggressive bike. It's, it's comfortable, it's fast, 68 degree head angles, like just sort of in the sweet spot of of control, but not being too too slow handling. 29er, of course, which is pretty much the standard for XC bikes. And yeah, that, that suspension platform they've got, it's just, it's really good for this kind of loose, rough, rocky terrain like you have at Whiskey Off-Road. So wait, cross-funtry, you're starting to sound like a marketing guy now. Am I gonna be losing you to the bike industry's marketing ranks? Well, I don't know, Fred. Uh, how, maybe we should talk about that raise that I was asking no, about last week. Yeah, maybe we should get back to the show. Yeah, let's take this offline, okay. Well, uh, where can the listeners learn more about Fazari bicycles? Yeah, go to fazari.com, find the signal peak there, as well as all their bikes. They do a whole range of uh, road bikes, everything. It's, uh, it's a great setup, and like we were saying, that 30-day love-it-or-leave-it policy is a great way to make sure you're happy with the bike. Thanks to Fazari Bicycles for sponsoring this week's episode of the Villainous Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Uh, all right. Well, moving on, we're going to talk about another unorthodox racing series, and that is the Red Hook Criterium Racing Series. Dane, you look like a real fixed gear racer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Any yeah. any motivation to go race your bike at the Ooh, Red Hook? Me, maybe not so much. I wouldn't mind watching, though. Uh, spectacle, I see, I think it certainly has has that going for it. It is. So I, th- this race has a sp- holds a special place in my heart. I used to live in Brooklyn. I used to go to the Red Hook every year, starting in about 2010, 2011. Before it was cool. Before I was Ooh, there before yeah. it was cool. No, I was. The, the first year was 2008, and it was held on open city streets in this industrial corner of Brooklyn. The people were having to dodge city buses. There were 15 participants, and like it was part of a birthday party. And now, 11 years later, it's held on a closed course in the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal. Thousands of people show up to watch it. There are qualifying rounds. There's ex-World Tour riders that show up. Uh, there's big six-figure sponsorship, light poles, jumbotrons, beer tents. It's a big deal. And the story of how it went from point A to point B 
I chronicled in a feature for uh, Velo News in 2016. Now, I went out there this year because I wanted to see how Red Hook has gone on in 2018. It's year five of the title sponsor from Rockstar Games, the video game company. Um, this year, Specialized is continuing to promote its Specialized Rocket Espresso Fixie team, but they have a bunch of like A-game writers on it. Angus Morton, who recently retired from Team um, Jelly Belly's on the team. Justin Williams is on the team. They have this guy, this German guy named Stefan, who's a cop in Germany, but he's super fast. Hey, worked for John Degenkolb. He used to be a cop. Yeah. People forget. Question, Fred. Uh, Rockstar Games, yep. are, are they going to roll out a Zwift-style uh, video game for virtual <laughs> bike racing? They they thing? should. So Rockstar Games, right. they make Grand Theft Auto. So they, maybe they could make a Grand Theft Auto Zwift crossover mm. where you are riding your That'd bike sweet. through the streets of San Angeles or whatever made-up city there is <laughs> yeah. shooting people. Speaking of weird... Um, out, so the cool thing about Red Hook is that it attracts people to bicycle racing who otherwise would never come to a bicycle race. It has this cool credential uh, with, you know, not just tight pants wearing hipster kids from Brooklyn, but also like people from the Bronx, you know, Latinos, African-Americans. It is it has reached out to these various cycling urban cycling subcultures who probably you're not going to see at your typical USA cycling race. Um, and with that comes some, some, some weirdness, some interesting sights and sounds. So, for example, one of the first things I saw was a team of gentlemen from Miami who had a – on their team kits, they had two sponsors, one of which was, I think, Evan Williams Whiskey. So, they had a whiskey sponsor. Nice. And the other sponsor was an adult website. I'm oh. not going to say which one it was. Oh, my. But it was an adult um, – pornographic website. Oh, geez. That's problematic. Yeah. And I went to interview the guy about how he got his adult um, website to sponsor the team. And he he told me a bunch of gobbledygook. And his name was Mr. Raven Gozhard from Miami, Florida. So no. Mr. Raven Gozhard, chapeau to you for bringing new sponsors to the sport. Is that his yeah, real name? That's very enterprising of him. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Raven Gozhard. <laughs> and someone got me out of me on Twitter and confirmed his identity. That's one for the whole like uh, name of the year bracket. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. So the way the Red Hook works is there are these qualifying races. Riders, I think they race you know, 10 or 11 laps around the course. And the first 20 of these five qualifying races advance to the finals. There's also a last chance race. If you crash in your qualifier, get a flat tire, there is one more opportunity for you to race your way into the finals. And you know who won the last chance race? Miguel Indurain Jr. Whoa. What? Yeah, Miguel Indurain's kid was at the race. No way. Yeah, yeah. In fact, let's hear from Miguel Indurain Jr. People will know my, my father, who um, he was and who he is and what he did. Um, for me, red bicycle, it was because I, I wanted to have fun and I don't know. I don't think too much about what my father did or something like that. I just tried it. So Miguel Indurain Jr., really nice guy. He didn't do much in the final, but um, had a pretty good uh, qualifying race. And I think the other thing, interesting thing about Red Hook at this point in its progression, it is starting to attract top talent from road racing. Um, some of these guys are current continental riders, European riders. There's a lot of Italians that come out. One of them is this uh, rider. His name is Davide Vigano. Davide, you've raced with Team Sky, Leopard Trek, Quick Step number of big teams 
Why did you decide to come race uh, on the fixed gear races? What was it about these races that was attractive to you? Because uh, after 13 years uh, really serious, I, I was searching uh, something different, no? Always cycling, but different, with fun. And uh, I was not so happy in my last part of my career. But uh, when I started uh, with Red Hook, everything was, uh, was good. And now I'm continuing. And I'm a new life because uh, also Team Cinelli is, uh, uh, is uh, my team because uh, I have an uh, ASD. SD, the name is uh, One Gear SD, and the name of the, of the team is Team Cinelli. Yeah. So it's something special for me because I'm a manager, I'm a rider, I'm happy, and uh, if uh, if we continue like this, I'm I'm so happy. What is the difference, um, the effort, the, the difference in the effort between a fixed gear criterium and a more traditional road race? The power is not so different because uh, something like a threshold or a average power is like a, a professional race because uh, we push uh, 400 watts for 40 minutes. The guys that are in front in this race for sure are in front uh, in a professional race. For example, in the start of the season, I did a Tour of Colombia with uh, Quickstep Team Sky and uh, Movistar. I was there with the Italian team, track, and I was in the top five, always. Without preparation or uh, winter preparation or something like that. So I think that the top riders uh, of Red Hook are for sure the, the, the good uh, sportsman or a good professional rider. How are the tactics and the strategies different from Red Hook compared to uh, road race? You, you can't stay quiet. You have to stay in the front, from the first lap to the end. Because uh, many crashes or we are uh, 100 riders without brakes. So it's not like uh, a road race that you can uh, uh, jump uh, the holes uh, or uh, uh, crashes or something like that you you have to stay in the front uh, yeah so you spend a lot of energy and uh, you you have to be smart for to spend less energy for to make a good final and of course there's also the crashes and i think that's where most people probably know red hook from the youtube videos of the like various crashes that yeah, circulate like the, the website the motorcycle stall that's the one that I always remember. There was the motorcycle stall. There was the guy who crashed and smashed his bike in half. That oh. was a classic one. Oh, yeah. that was. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing of it is, is that, yes, racing a fixed gear bicycle on the road requires a certain skill set. Um, it, it definitely changes the dynamics of the race because, you know, you, you got to pedal through these corners. And so there's one line through the corner. As opposed to a normal crit where you may see guys go through corners three deep or four deep, you can't do that at the Red Hook crit. It has to be one line. And because this is a twisting, turning course, it really makes it difficult to move up in the race. So oftentimes it's the riders who are in the top 
five to 10 that are really deciding the race. If you're not in that top to five, five to 10 riders, you are, you're kind of hosed. It, it pays to ride aggressive basically. And, and I, wouldn't you also say Fred that it's a little difficult to chase back breakaways if, if you give them too much a leash just cause you're, you run out of gear to use basically. Yeah. I mean, if there's a lull in the action and someone goes off the front and, and people don't immediately chase, um, you know, everyone kind of has a, has a top speed. You're all governed by that one gear that you decided to bring. And so breakaways can very easily go the distance. It's like that that e-bike race where Spencer was sort of governed by the, by the motor on the e-bike. Ooh, yeah. good point. Ooh, yeah. e-fixed bike. I think e-red hook. Yeah. E-fixed bike e virtual racing. <laughs> e-red hook virtual racing is definitely going to be the next thing. So I stuck, I stuck around for the final. It poured rain. Um, and the women's race was, uh, was decided in a surge at the line and Raphael, Raffaele Lemieux from Montreal won. She is an optometrist from, uh, Montreal, who was also a member of Canada's speed skating program for a number of years, as well as a cyclist. She was super cool. And then the men's race was won in a sprint by Filippo Fortin, who races on a continental team in Austria. And here's the thing. So Specialized. So Lemieux rides for Specialized. And then Specialized had the strongest five guys in the men's race. And they were just on the front the whole time and sending guys off. And they'd get chased back and send another guy off. They dominated the race. And they set up Justin Williams for the sprint. And in the final corner, he left the door open. And this guy, 14, came around and won. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. So Can't do that. Brutal, brutal. Uh, anyway, that was a Red Hook crit. I think, you know, looking, looking in, in the future, I think that this format – does have potential because of its ability to bring in urban cyclists. Yeah, but I mean, is it too difficult for people to do to, to learn how to ride a fixed gear high speeds through these 90 degree corners? Is it too dangerous to really have that broad appeal to, to people who are a little more amateur, a little less experienced? I think it will cater to the people who are already riding fixed gear bicycles. And in places like Los Angeles, New York City, and Philadelphia, there's just a lot of people riding fixed, fixed gear bicycles. Out here in Boulder, not so much, but there's parts of, this, parts of the country where it's a thing. Yeah, and also, obviously, there is a barrier to entry, I think, from the difficulty side but on the other side there's less of a barrier to entry because when you don't have to furnish gears cheaper it's a lot cheaper that's to race a, very, a fixed gear bike point, and yeah. that's really important i think it's a very good point so fred have you ever raced a red hook i've never raced one i have ridden fixed gear bikes around new york city don't recommend it i thought it <laughs> i found it to be very terrifying but i have lots of respect for those who are able to do it well to our friends in the bike industry listening to this podcast you know if you want to Get in the ground floor, a little uh, activation, a little sponsorship of old Fred racing a Red Hook. We should get him a bike and uh, see what happens. Oh, I did have a bike sponsor while I was out there. Uh, my, my buddy Jimmy Phillips, who runs a, a company called The Domestique, where he rents bicycles out to like uh, visiting people to New York City. He, he got me a bike. It was not fixed gear, though. Well, I mean, I'm talking about getting you in this race. I mean, we need the first. We already have one. We need the first hand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did it a whiskey. Oh, I had man. the cramps. I did 40, 48 miles, and it took me forever. Blood, sweat, and tears with Spencer. Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah I, I was covered in salt afterward. Now it's your turn. We could get a dental sponsor. That's that's great for mm -hmm. me. There mm -hmm. we go. For when I knock my teeth That's out. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on, guys. Guys, we are just a few days away from the start of the Giro d'Italia. Often the most exciting Grand Tour of the year. Often also the most boring Grand Tour of the year because it's so brutal. Mm -hmm. I feel like this year is somewhere in between. We don't have like a double Stelvio day, but we have lots of 
of big climbing days towards the end of the week. So, Dane, when you look at the 2018 Giro d'Italia, what are the storylines that pop into your head? Uh, storylines, probably the first one is the, is the one that, yeah, I'm probably least excited to talk about. Of course, it's the Chris Froome storyline coming into the race. As of the recording of this show, he's still racing the Giro d'Italia. Who knows? You never really know what, what's going to happen with that case. But I think that that's sort of the, the big storyline, him and then Tom Dumoulin trying to defend that title. But there's a lot of other good things to talk about that don't have anything to do with Sabutamol or adverse analytical findings. You've got the return of the Zonkalon, which is one of the craziest climbs on the world tour, if not the craziest. I mean, it, it's that or uh, Langlaru at the Vuelta. It's a, it's a really good climb. That's on... Uh, Stage 14. There we go. That's what I was about to look that up. I got not you. Nicely done. I got you there, Dane. Uh, so that's going to be a one to watch, I think, the Zonkalon. Another thing with the Giro, you all forget these um, riders who are kind of near the near a breakthrough, and they, and they use the Giro to do it. And we saw Tom Dumoulin last year. That exa- is exactly what he did. He was... Sort of seen as somebody who maybe was too heavy to race a Grand Tour. And then he went out and won the Giro. So there's always that. Like, who's going to be that guy this year? Uh, and then, of course, Israel. The, the race kicks off in Israel. And that's I think that's a big one. That's uh, I believe, the first time that uh, a Grand Tour has has taken place outside of, uh, has started outside of uh, Europe. Yeah, so. that's exactly true. Three, yeah. The first three stages will be uh, will be in Israel. First stage is going to be that time trial around Jerusalem, which is pretty short, 9.7K. And I think everyone agrees it's maybe a little tricky, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the required reading for all of you out there is the Velo News Giro d'Italia guide, which just hit newsstands a little while ago because we have some backstory on some of the riders who are getting ready for this thing, Dumoulin versus Froome. And we also have the backstory on how the Giro came to Israel, a great narrative by Andrew Hood. And the backstory in a condensed version is basically a very passionate cyclist named Sylvan Adams, who um, happens to be a wealthy individual from Canada, has roots in Israel. He is helping bankroll this project. Uh, It's ended up costing about $12 million for Israel to host the Giro d'Italia for these first three stages. But, But beyond the money, he spent the better part of two to three years or so you know, with this dream to bring the Jira to Israel and went and met with the people from RCS multiple times. He had a meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to talk about this project. He was really the driving force behind this project alongside some of the other people who are affiliated with the Cycling Academy project. Some of you may be familiar with that. That is the pro-continental team that uh, is linked to Israel that will be in the Giro this year. So while there is, you know, Israel wants some goodwill and the Giro wants to have an international flavor, a lot of this Israel start can be traced back to the efforts of one man. I think it's another example, and, and you don't often really see how much of an impact they have, but they really do. There are a couple of really, really rich dudes who love cycling who have a huge impact on the sport. And that's kind of been the case for quite a long time. And you don't often really see it. But going on behind the scenes, a lot of times it's just these very wealthy people who love cycling and they just pour money into it. I mean, Andy Reese, uh, who owned BMC, just passed away. That team is now looking for a sponsor. They have no idea what their future is going to look like. Mm. Basically, that guy, just a gazillionaire who loves cycling and just funneled a ton of money and 
bankrolled one of the largest budget teams in the sport for years. And I don't know that a lot of cycling fans know his name, but he paid the salaries of a lot of the people that they've heard of. And same goes for Oleg Tinkoff, who maybe got a bit of a He's reputation. He's a more visible. Yeah. Less, of a, less of a friendly guy. But, I mean, same thing. He's just a super wealthy guy, loves cycling, and he put all his money into it. And in Oleg Tinkoff's case, I'm not sure the uh, balance was positive. But, again, they, they have a really big impact that you don't always see, I think, up front. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again with some of these figureheads having impact specifically on the team side of things. This is the first time, mm, though, I can mm. think of it having an impact on a grand tour in this way. I mean, to bring it this far away from its home country. This is the first time that any grand tour will be starting outside of Europe. And it's very much in line with what the Giro has tried to do. You know, the Giro is famous for going outside the borders of Italy every few years. Uh, 2016, it started in the Netherlands. 2014, Northern Ireland. 2012, Denmark. 2010, the Netherlands again. 2006, Belgium. So every two years or so, they like to have one of these foreign starts. And you know what? These foreign starts gener- generate a uh, pretty, pretty healthy uh, yeah. bump of income for them. Yeah, they can. And definitely a big logistical challenge as well. I, I feel like I saw a cycling news story earlier this week about a 747 jet that was just loaded mm, with yeah, all the logistical that. stuff that the Giro needed to pull off this uh, big start in, in, in Israel. But uh, yeah, we have that uh, story from Andy Hood actually on VeloNews.com right now about how the Giro ended up starting in Jerusalem. So check that out. And with it comes controversy. You know, the Israel is a controversial state due to its foreign politics due to its um, dealings with Palestinians. And Andy actually spoke to a uh, few groups that are protesting the start as well. So that's going to be something to watch for this year's Giro, the first few stages, if there are any visible protests or protests that disrupt the stage. I know at one point the Giro was talking about having a contingency plan in case something went wrong to start back in Italy. Yeah, well, heaven forbid, you know, definitely. You always hope for the best, but uh, we'll just hope for those those first three stages go off smoothly. Uh, talking point number two, guys, the battle. Chris Froome, multiple time, multiple time Tour de France winner. Has he more won more than one? I think he's won a couple. A couple yeah. of them? Yeah. Four, maybe? Maybe? Yeah. yeah. Froome versus Dumoulin? Mm. He's won a Giro? Yeah, just one. Oh, man, jeez. Yeah. Got to check my stats on that. World time trial champion as well. Yeah. And he beat none other than Chris Froome. Battle, battle of the Titans, Froome versus Dumoulin, the, you know, the fight that we've wanted to see for a few years now because we found Dumoulin, a guy who can time trial and climb fairly well, um, do both things that Froome has used in his various Tour de France wins. So, guys, how do we see this playing out? I, you know, I think that uh, the Giro Tour double is really hard to do. And we've seen many people try recently and many people fail. We saw Alberto Contador win the Giro and not look good at the Tour. We saw Nairo Quintana, I think, maybe hold back a little at the Giro and then still not do anything at the Tour. I think this is a slightly different case, though. One, because Chris Froome is a really, really, really good rider. But also, there is a chance he will not ride the Tour de France. And I talked about this a little bit on the, on the recon ride this week in terms of trying to pick a favor for this race. I think not... Being certain that he's going to ride the tour, I don't think Froome's going to hold back at the Giro. He's got nothing to lose because he could very well not end up riding the tour at all. So you might as well just go 100%. And a Chris Froome going 100%, pretty hard to beat. That's a scary thought. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'll add that to me, 
I don't feel very confident in Dumoulin. I really don't. I don't. I haven't seen anything from him so far this year. He's had really rough times in the early stage races. I, I don't know if he's going to be the guy to mount the challenge against Froome. And what we've been hearing a little bit, I, I saw some quotes from Alberto Contador. I think it was a story that Andrew Hood did maybe last week or earlier this week. It uh, sounded like maybe time trials aren't quite as essential yeah. for this particular Giro. So. Maybe we're looking to Fabio Aro to actually be the one to challenge Chris Room. Granted, it would be in the mountains, not the time trials, of course. But, uh, yeah, like I said, to me, Dumoulin, uh, I don't know. He's, you know, you look back and he's just not, he doesn't have much on his on his record so far this spring for results. And uh, you got to do something, I think, to, 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 to gear up for a race with an early, early challenge like this one does in the first week. Yeah, our Gregor Brand sat down and interviewed him uh, before Milan San Remo talking about his bad buildup, which included um, several mechanicals at the Abu Dhabi tour, crashes, sickness. It just was a really, yeah, just not a good one because A, you lose out on some of the form, but then B, it's the confidence gets shaken. And for a challenge like going up against Chris Froome, you know, you'd kind of want Dumoulin riding high. I think another element to think about, though, and I wrote about this, is that, you know, Chris Froome and his team Sky have succeeded at the Tour de France by exerting control and by, you know, being strong enough to really, yeah, just control the peloton at the times that they need to. And as we've seen with the Giro d'Italia year after year, ah, man, the Giro just produces chaos, whether it's a motorcycle parked on the side of the road or a sketchy finish line or a rainstorm or, you know, a badly marked course. The Giro d'Italia has been very difficult to control. In fact, I'm trying to think back to recent years where we have seen teams execute a Team Sky-style dominating performance, and I can't really come up with one. Not yeah. one that's won. I think uh, the year that Alberto Contador won, Astana rode a really, really good race, and they, they, still, couldn't, they yeah. still couldn't keep Contador down. And it's just that's, I think that's a, just a symbol of how the Giro works. I would agree. And, I mean, I see your point, Fred, but... I got to say, when I look at the first 10 days of racing and see these three mountaintop finishes, ah, that to me feels like it's it's like one of those chances for Froome. And he's done this in, in Tours de France a few times where he'll just make a just terrible, fierce attack on one of the early summit finishes and put a lot of people out of contention. And then from then on, he's just following wheels. I think you, you brought up Dumoulin having a rough start to the season, though, and I think it's worth pointing out that Chris Froome has not had a flying start to 2018. That's fair. That's fair. And I agree, yeah. I, I would say that Froome doesn't necessarily need a flying start to do well in a Grand Tour, but he has not even been on a stage podium anywhere yet this year. Yeah, and let's not forget when he won the Tour de France last year, literally his first win of the season true. was on the champs yeah. when he was wearing yeah, the yellow true. so uh, he can he he's not thirsty we'll say that <laughs> yeah I, I just think that there's a couple of guys who are coming in a little hotter and oh, th sure. there's a chance that that first week attack might not come from chris Froome. fair point and, and there, there are a couple of guys who may be coming in in good form who might be able to actually upset the apple cart hopefully maybe to make for an interesting race. All right, Dane. Well, who are these hot young studs yeah, you're talking well, about? Yeah, one of them's not so young anymore. Uh, Thibaut Pino, I think, is a really good chance. I think he used to be this guy who could only climb. He couldn't descend at all. He was a joke descending. He was bad at time trialing. Uh, he's gotten really good at time trialing. 
Yeah, like, yeah. I he's good at descending. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't want you he's to go better. too. I mean, he's better. Let's all yeah. remember that little Eurosport clip from Tour of the Alps when Chris Froome just embarrassed him on one of those descents, just flying yeah. past him. I Didn't mean, we do a Velenu show about that? We might have, but Thibaut Pinot is still not a world-class Marginal descender. Marginal improvements, and, shall we say. And the Giro d'Italia, you know, joking aside, the Giro no, d'Italia, really I weather, think it's... Yeah. Yeah, between yeah. the weather and the fact that these roads are often more narrow and more yeah. technical yeah. than what you find in the Tour de France, I don't necessarily like Thibaut Pinot's odds. It's definitely it's definitely something he's going to have to overcome. On the other hand, I think he's improved a lot as a time trialist, as a more complete rider. I think he's less likely to have one of those jour sans now, nowadays than he used to have. Uh, he's a guy that had just come off a Tour of the Alps win. And then another one I think worth a lot of, uh, a lot of attention is Miguel Angel Lopez, who has not really done enough Grand Tour racing for us to really have a great sense of what he's capable of. But in his one Grand Tour that he has finished, he won two stages, finished in the top 10. Young guy, not awful in the time trials. But I, it was the Welta. It was the Welta, but, <laughs> but hey, who won that Welta? <laughs> no, it's true. It was Chris yeah, Froome Chris won Froome, that Welta. Was, And yeah. the Welta gets more and more competitive every, every year. year. Yeah. It's very true. Yeah, yeah I, I think he's a great wild card to pick. Yeah. Uh, I think he's got a lot of talent, especially climbing. Also a guy with a bit of a crashing, a bit of a penchant. For crashing, I don't, I don't know if, it call, if you can call it a pension if he doesn't actually want to do it, but he does it mm. a lot. And the Giro is not the easiest race to not crash in. So there's a lot of guys with question marks, maybe. Although I'll say, if, I'll say, Dane, if, if you're picking a Colombian, to me, you should pick Esteban Chavez. Yeah, sure. He's far more experienced when it comes to really racing for GC. He's been on podium and Grand Tours. He's, uh, I, it, you know, maybe this is this is his race to finally have a shot at really winning, winning an, you know, Nibali totally took care of him at the Giro a couple years ago and it was sort of sad to see because Chavez such a such a charismatic guy you know hugging all his buddies in the Mitchelton Scott bus and he he's adorable I'll let I'll come clean here and say I think he's one of the cutest riders in the peloton mm, yeah but yeah no uh no real time tile mileage in this Giro either so that's good that, for him that I, will play to his relatively advantage. speaking this is a really climber friendly Giro Definitely. 30 31 total kilometers of time trialing which yeah. may negate uh, Tom Dumoulin's time trial skills. So, guys, you know, that brings up another point I wanted to talk about, which was, you know, we have Froome, we have Dumoulin, and then it really kind of falls off after that. In mm. fact, I want you both to make a noise after I read <laughs> the following names to let me know your level of enthusiasm for this man, <laughs> for each man as a Giro contender this, this year. This is good. Okay. We need that. We need like this a, is good a little soundboard. We need a little soundboard like the yeah. shock jocks do in the whop, whop, whop. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so number one, Fabio Aru. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Those yeah. were yeah. sort of optimistic I, no, I'm, sounds. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty I hot. I think the first for, couple of names I'm going to, yeah. I'm pretty hot for Fabio. Yeah. Oh, come on. I mean, he, he, the thing about Fabio Aru is he will attack. That's true. You know he will. He's not going to follow wheels. He will go for it, and God bless him for trying. All right, next one. Simon Yates. Me? Maybe. Nah. 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 We already talked about Chavez and Lopez. Chavez Chavez is C. And Lopez is... Uh, I don't know. I don't know the word for maybe tal vez, in Spanish. Si. What is uh, it? Tal vez, maybe. Tal yeah, vez? Oh, yeah, see, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're here, Dane. <laughs> Louis Munchies. Louis, Louis Munchies. Nah. I'm not, I'm not buying Munchies this year. No. He's, and he, I think he's having a pretty difficult first yeah, half of the season. Yeah, it's a great start. Um, I can't remember whether it was like an illness or what it was, but I feel like I've seen some stories about him really downplaying where his form is at going into the Giro. Yeah, yeah. All right, here's a noise to be made. Mike Woods. Yay? Yeah! Hey! Hey! 
Hey. 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 <laughs> Smack the mic for that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. No, sorry. Yeah. I have a high level of enthusiasm for Mike Woods. A stage win, certainly, I think is a possibility. He's a lot punchier than a lot of the other Grand Tour type guys. So I think if he gets up there in one of those mountain stages and uh, a guy like Chris Froome is like, eh, I'm going for the pink jersey, Mike Woods could definitely come away with a mountain stage win. In terms mm. of GC, eh, 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 eh. I could see him going top 10. GC. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe top five. But boy, he looked great at Liège. He did, yeah. So moving on, guys, let's give the listeners a quick primer of the stages that they should definitely watch. As of, of course, this is bike racing, so you should watch every minute of every stage just mm-hmm. because. Yep. But I understand if you're busy, you know, maybe uh, you have a real just hectic May coming up. want to set the DVR. So here are the stages I think you should watch. Starting off sta- uh, week one, stage six. This is on May 10th. This is the one that finishes to Mount Etna. Probably the first big GC battle we're going to have. There's a couple punchy uphill finishes prior to this one. But if you are really looking to streamline your Giro viewing, May 10th, tune in to the Etna stage. Uh, next one to check out. And sidebar, last year, the Etna stage, pretty exciting. Solo win, kind of a surprise. And it, it does have a different uh approach this year yep. to last time so it's, it's a really sort long. of a different call. very long a little yeah. harder this year i think than last year and last yeah. year it was pretty cagey and not not particularly aggressive racing among the gc riders if i remember correctly so two days later may 12th this is stage eight to monteverne de i'm not even going to try on these stage eight yes i would like parmesan on my pasta yeah. yes thank delicious. you for thank you for offering does that come with chicken yes watch that one another big uphill finish the next stage stage nine that is to Gran Sasso d'Italia. That is a big one. Yeah, for my money, I think eight will just stage eight will just soften them up, and we're not going to see a lot of fireworks in stage nine. That maybe is really when you'll see some GC movement. Like the final eighty k of stage nine is basically uphill. There's it's officially two categorized climbs there, but. It, you could kind of see it more as just like one really long and terrible slog that ends in like a crazy double-digit gradient. So. It looks it looks quite awful. Yeah, it really I, does. Yeah, I don't think I would enjoy that. Um, maybe on an e-bike, but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not on a fixed gear bike. Mm. Not on a fixed Bring your gears. Um, then, guys, stage 14, May 19th, Montez Oh, yeah. The big brute of a climb. Uh, I think it averages 90% for <laughs> 100 kilometers. <laughs> You're basically rock climbing. Yeah. It's a class four scramble. Yeah. Uh, Zonkalan every year produces such amazing photos, too, of the huge crowds that make their way to the top of this very steep, narrow road. Well, a lot of bike races, you got to get up really early, and you go out there, and you stand for hours, and then they just go by, and it's it's done in five seconds. But Zonkalan is so steep that it takes them like five hours to pass you, so it's really worthwhile to go climb that thing. You get to just sit there and watch them go by so slow. Slowly. Or you bring the camper van, have a little uh, picnic. Do you remember the, st- the year a few years ago when Michael Rogers won, when he was riding with a breakaway contan- companion, an Italian rider on a pro continental Ooh, team whose ouch. name escapes me now. And like a fan went to push this guy and pushed him off his bike. And that was then, that was like the move. I mean, I expected Rogers to win, but that was such bad Tifosi. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Let's behave ourselves out there, everyone. And I think like that guy, that was like the last thing that he did. Yeah, uh, like worthwhile, you know, memorable in terms of a result. In, in his Clearly career. not that memorable since we can't remember well, his name between the three of us. Yeah. Get, get on the Google enough. there, Dan. Get some Google yeah. going. I think it was Francesco Bongiorno. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Was it? it was totally Bongiorno. Yeah. I didn't want to say it and be wrong, but I think that's who it was. Yeah. So moving on, uh, stages 18, 19, and 20. 
all definitely worth watching. And this is when the Jiro, I feel like, is going to be decided. Yeah, or this is kind of when the Jiro gets a little bit ridiculous. And yeah. you're like, come on, like this isn't even fun to watch anymore because these guys are just on their hands and knees slogging up these hills. And uh, sometimes the racing just doesn't end up being as aggressive and there's not as much unpredictability because everyone's too dang tired to do anything. Yeah, this may be by the uh, this may, may be the point in the race in which we are just tuning in for the last few kilometers because it is a foregone conclusion and Chris Froome has stomped everyone well, just under hope, his wheels. Hopefully they're all good about their recovery and preparation and they'll be... Ready Speak for yourselves. I'm going to tune in to watch Bardiani get in the breakaway every Ooh, day. Yeah, yeah, you win will. those breakaway stages with those wacky, yeah. with those wacky helmets like Brico or whatever they are. Those things are funny. How do we get those imported? Hopefully, US? Bardiani has a better Giro this year than last year. Ooh, mm. Yeah, hard to go any lower no than good. last year with the two guys getting popped and kicked out on the first day. It's very Italian. How do they end up getting invited back in? Come on. Uh, well, definitely check out all the great Giro coverage we have online and we will be talking a lot about the giro over the next few weeks because oh, yeah. obviously that is the big race going on all right guys before we get out of here should we do a little off the front off the back of course what is hot what is not in the world of bike racing sure yeah wow, look right. at how enthusiastic these faces oh, yeah. are here yeah. all right everyone what's your off the front off the back spencer we'll start with you okay okay my off the front is crit racing because you had the Red Hook crit over the weekend. You had the Fat Tire crit at Whiskey Off-Road. Heck, you had Athens Twilight crit as part of the Speed Week crit. So everybody's racing crits right now. I guess that's the thing to do. So cool. We crits. should hop in one of the local ones, Fred, and just like jong it up in the Cat 3 field. Yeah, maybe you could be on an e-bike and I could be on like a gravel bike or Why something. Why does everyone assume I should be riding mm. e-bikes anymore? That's You're insulting. Professional That's because you yeah. almost beat a professional e-bike racer. It wasn't almost. It wasn't that close. All right, all right. My off the back is slick tires on mountain bikes mm. because at the whiskey off-road there's it's kind of flexible where you can put slick tires for on your bike for the crit and like a lot of the riders don't take too kindly to that because it's sort of a pain in the butt to change your tires you get sealing all over the place and and it's not technically a fat tire anymore than is it when it becomes slick tire and the fat tire crit so bring back the knobbies for the fat tire crit and the yeah. hum oh the hum yeah it just makes me nauseous remembering my days as a junior cross-country racer mm. that that noise of people warming up on trainers with knobby tires oh my uh off the front is infinity sponsorships and by infinity not the car but sponsorships that run forever yeah did yeah you what, guys, what could go wrong <laughs> did you guys see the news that team sunweb have inked a deal with title sponsor Sunweb that sees the holiday company come back on an indefinite basis. Sweet. So I guess they'll be, I mean, they're going to be sponsoring um, this team. When they're robots? Yes. When A, when there's robot racing. B, when it's like Planet of the Apes. Virtual racing. That far in the future. Yeah. C, when Planet. there's, um, you know, I, I can't think of every uh, post, Thunderdome racing. post-apocalyptic yeah. Yeah. scenario. Ooh, yeah, I like that. Mad Max, Mad Max type stuff. Yeah. yeah. They're going to have their sponsorship going forever. Hey, no. Very forward-looking company. Indeed. But all in all seriousness, thank you to Sunweb yeah, for awesome. continuing to sponsor this team, that's a good one. Or Dunkuel, as it is. Yes, Ooh. exactly. In Dutch. Um, off the back, you know, there's a lot of uh, different um, ones to come from. But I have to say, my off the back is Louis Westra's approach to um, his 
his cheating and his abuse. He tweeted out basically that he didn't think he had been doing anything wrong. Ooh. He's just like, yeah, man, I was just playing by the game. No remorse. A little tone deaf. Remorse. I don't, I don't think he ran that by anyone. Remorseless cheating. Obviously, no PR people were involved there. I uh, Off the front, for some of the people who got at him on Twitter to call him out, I believe Mike Woods, Ooh. Emily Batty, some of the Canadians. Mike Woods was chirping him. He's chirping him, man, oh, for hey. being a cheater, eh? Hey, nice. sorry to chirp you like this, but... Nice, Mike. So, yeah, we, we want our dopers to be a little bit apologistic. A, a apologetic yeah mm. yeah seems fair okay all right. all right dane what do you got uh i'm gonna go with off the off the front dmitry strakov the well-known russian racer dmitry strakov uh of loco sphinx <laughs> want a stage at the vuelta Asturias? why is he off the front you ask why do you care because dmitry strakov he didn't give up when he when it was pretty clear that he was going to lose a stage at the vuelta Asturias. he didn't just pack it in when Jonathan Cayacito started celebrating about 10 meters before the line in a stage at the Volta Sturis, Dmitry Strakov just kept going. He kept his head down. He kept racing to the line. And you know what? He passed Jonathan Cayacito and snatched that win from a, a celebrating too early Jonathan Cayacito. I think you just made up all of these no. names. I've so never heard of these. The whole like celebrating too early thing, we've seen it a number of times before. Usually it's really close. Yeah. Like I think of Eric yeah. Zabal, Milan San Remo. I mean, he is beaten by centimeters with a bike throw. This one wasn't even close. The guy celebrated so far too early. Yeah, yeah. and and Strakov was really coming on strong. That Cayacito almost like he almost finished third because yeah. the guy that was the guy that uh, was behind Strakov almost passed Cayacito as well. So it was a pretty embarrassing moment uh, as as early celebrations go. They're always embarrassing, but this one was extra embarrassing. But kudos to Strakov for going hard to the line. Uh, I'm sure that's going to really raise his international profile. That stage one at the Vuelta Asturias. Uh, I'm sure the other guy will get him next time. Yeah, right. That's right. Off the back, I'm going to go with uh, Fernando Gaviria, who at uh, the uh, Eschborn Frankfurt this week, a race that, you know, if you look at the start list and the other sprinters there, Gaviria looks like the fastest guy there. Coming into the finale, he went really early in the sprint, like really early, and then he kind of disappeared. And it was unclear what happened until after the race. You see on the on the uh, on the camera that it seemed like he he might have taken a bit of a wrong turn. Uh, the, one of the motos going into the diversion where the motos are supposed to pull off so that they're not blocking the finish line. He seemed to follow the motorcycle uh, in the last curve <laughs> into the diversion, right? and and then just but like he didn't actually go off the road. He just sort of realized like oh. Crap, I just lost the bike race, basically. And, uh, yeah, got swallowed up. Alexander Kristoff went on and took the win for, like, the fourth straight time. Uh, Gaviria banging the handlebars, as you might do if you're a quick-step rider losing a sprint. We've seen that before this year. That'd be cool if they could start using those diversion routes as, like, an alternate line to the mm. finish. Mm -hmm. And, like, have yeah. a little bit of a sort of decision point. And Sounds so like a good swift racing uh, yeah, you could opportunity. Do, yeah, totally. Like yeah. A little... No, it's the I don't want a sprint line. Mm. It's the, like, hey, I'll let my sprinter do this. I'm going to take the diversion route. It goes right to the there cafe. Yeah. Going to get a sandwich. That'd be perfect for a lead-out man. Yeah. Perfect for Max Ricchese. Not so much for Fernando Gaviria, who gets paid a lot of money. Money to not do that. That's fair. So it didn't wasn't a good look for Fernando, uh, who has had a rough. He hasn't won a lot this year. Yeah, so. well, he's crashed a lot. Yeah, so yeah. Part of it. yeah. Don't take the diversion, Fernando. Mm. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VeloNews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the in our pretty classic soul. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.